Good morning. I have three texts that I want to read from the lectionary. That might be a little too much Bible, but hey, we probably need it in this particular season that we're in. Remember, Sanctuary has chosen to follow the lectionary as a general rule. The major principle behind the lectionary is that as we read it over the Sundays of any given year, the church ends up hearing the voice of the sacred text from both the Old Testament and New Testament week by week rather than just listening to readings that have been selected according to someone's favorite theme, right? The texts are generally chosen in concert with the church calendar or major church holidays, that sort of thing. And over the course of a couple of years, this, this most central part of the story of the Bible is encountered, and it's a beautiful way to ensure that the church hears the full counsel of God. I've found that it helps me as a teacher and my preaching um, because if I'm not careful, I just preach on the stuff that I like to preach on. But when I embrace the lectionary, it sort of nudges me and others that are in ministry to address things that we probably wouldn't have addressed. So it's really a good discipline. So I'm just going to read a part of these readings in the lectionary. They're actually longer than this, but there's a couple of points I want to make about each one of them. The first one, I just want to make a slight point from. It's 1 Samuel 16, 6. And the text says... When they came, this is um, actually Samuel who's going to be praying for David to be anointed as king. And so he first goes to David's household and, and he's, he's looking at these brothers of David. And this is where the, uh, we pick up the text. It says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, this is Samuel looking at who's thinking out loud here, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a, a great word, I think, for us in the midst of all the reports that we're hearing about the coronavirus and all the stuff that's spinning around us. I mean, if we're not careful, um, we'll just react to things that we're hearing. And, and surely we need to respond wisely right, from the dangers that are unfolding in the world. And, and we need, but but that being said, we need to remember that Jesus is still Lord. And that should inform our responses and inform our attitudes. And this is what the Lord said. He doesn't look on what mere mortals see, but you know, they look, mere mortals look on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks beyond that. And on some level, as people of faith, we're supposed to look beyond what we hear and beyond what we see. I mean, again, we need to, to carry a, a sense of seriousness about what we need to respond to, but we need to carry hope and carry faith as we respond with common sense and appropriate caution. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. I thought that text was cool. Um, it's in the lecture and I thought it was appropriate. The second text is out of Ephesians 5 and uh, starting in verse 8. And this is where Paul says, for once you were darkness, but now you are light, or you, now in the Lord you are light. Live, he says, as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible is light. Therefore, he says, it says, sleeper, arise or awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So I want to talk about light a little bit and how it enters our lives and how 
it awakens us, how it causes an arise or an openness and a rising of stuff within us. But before I do that, let me read the gospel because it also kind of speaks to light in that there's a man who's blind who all of a sudden his eyes are open. He sees what he didn't see. Light comes into his life. So let me read that first before I talk. we talk a little bit about light. This is out of the Gospel, John uh, chapter 9. It says, as Jesus walked along, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? As long as I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Then when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. So here's a situation where a guy is living in darkness in terms of sight, and all of a sudden he can see. He, things are lit up for him. So let's go back to that first verse again in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 5 and verse 8 where the text says, For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. And then he says, Live as children of light. There's a kind of victory that's embedded in the concept of light. Paul says, You were darkness, but now... The, in the Lord, you are light. This means that, that light wins over dark. Even the, a small candle that's lit in a dark place catches people's eyes, right? Which means light always wins. Paul says then in verse 9 that the fruit of light is good, which results in things ending up being right and true. So there's a, a beauty about light, um, a warmth to it. Warmth isn't always the thing that dominates us. I mean, the Gospel of John warns us that there's this penchant in human beings to love darkness rather than light, to love coldness rather than warmth. Um, here's what I've noticed about me. I mean, my soul tends to get dark and cold. Um, there are times when I have this pushback in me, away from God, away from others, and as the old hymn goes that we sing, my heart is prone to wander. I wish that weren't true, but it is. This is why I need places like church where I get around people of faith and I need practices like prayer. I, I can get dark pretty quick. It's the light present in those spiritual spaces that ends up warming my soul, that ends up despairing spelling the cold darkness that sort of resides in me. And what I find most odd is that when darkness is crowding in me, you'd think that I have been around this thing long enough to just immediately run to the light. But, but when I find darkness emerging or deepening or whatever it does in me, it, it I don't like moving towards the light. I mean, not at first. Think of, um, think of someone turning on the light on you in the middle of the night. I mean, most of us hate that. It's so disruptive and aggravating. So he flips a light on in the middle of the night. I, 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 I get like that. I don't always want the light. And because I know I get like that, I know that I can't really trust my emotions to help me keep you know, in the fight against darkness. I have to embrace habits that bring light, like prayer habits. Like it's one of the reasons I... Pray the Book of Common Prayer. Um, 
I just lock into it and pray it morning and evening. I do that because it, it, it's a habit that I don't have to rely on my emotions. Going to church is a habit. Commitments to meditate, you know, where I just simply get quiet and reflect. That habit. Um, and I do simple meditations, like imagining I'm connected to God and the whole universe, right? And I sort of ride on that thought until my own parochial concerns are just not as big. Years ago, I remember I was driving along the road in some middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, and I heard in my heart, I think it was from the Holy Spirit, and, and this was what I heard, you're a cave dweller. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but the image I had immediately was of being in a closed space, like inside a cave, you know, mouth of a cave, where, where I'm in this small place and I was the biggest thing going on, right, in that space. I, I thought of um, how human houses have such low ceilings, right? We put up, we put up street lamps that make the ceiling of the sky just a few feet over us. Or we get in cars where the whole world is just above our heads. In other words, we live and we move in spaces that scream to us that we're the biggest things in the world, which make our problems the biggest things in the world. But somehow we need to look beyond us, you know, so my meditation, sometimes I'll try to watch a video about the universe or, or sometimes I like to go out in some dark area at night and be able to, where you can see the stars. Um, I think we need to run to spaces and to thoughts that help us realize that we are very small. Somehow that arrests some stuff in us that need to be arrest, arrested. Psalm 103 says in verse 14, for God knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The question is, do we remember that? So these habits, like prayer, meditation, church, you know, and all that kind of stuff, they help us get beyond us. And they're the things that you do when you feel no motivation to do them. You just do them on autopilot. I, I try to contend for spiritual habits because something happens in me when I do them. I get lit. My soul gets warmed. Darkness loses strength. The other thing that happens with light is that it reveals. Now this has an upside and a downside. I mean, in our gospel text, a blind man sees because of an encounter with Jesus. What if um, all of us are blind in some ways? What if all of us need encounters with God to be healed? 1 John 1, 9 has always been an interesting text to me, one of my favorite texts because I've been a professional sinner. So this is one of those that you would, you know, lean toward. The text actually says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's such an interesting text because what it's saying is when we confess the things we know about that are wrong. We get forgiven of those, but there's an ad. We also get forgiven of and purified from things we don't know about that we didn't confess while we confess the things we do know about. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's saying here, that he could, not only do we get forgiven of the things we confess, but we're cleansed from all the unright that's in us that we maybe know nothing about. This shows how committed God is to forgiving us. 
we give him what we know and he addresses that plus all the stuff we didn't realize that we were doing that are offensive to him, he forgives us of those things. I actually think um, if we did know every way that we're offensive to God, I think we would quit. I think it would be too overwhelming. Uh, so here's the good news you can deduct from this. I mean, God does not require perfection from human beings. The human experience is not one of perfection. It's one of growth. And because of our relationship with God, because it's rooted in unconditional love, it's a safe thing to come to God. It's, that we, it's, it's safe for us to recognize that we're not all that. We can be honest about not being perfect. So on some level, you and I suck, right? We are always being offensive, but it's cool as long as we own what we already know and we bring that to God. God remembers that you and I are made from dust and he forgives us of all our bad when we catch some of our bad and when we don't catch our bad. He forgives it if we just simply bring what we catch. It's knowing that we have some growth to do and that there is still some crud in all of us, even when we're not conscious of its full extent. It's knowing that that makes us open to reflection and to the light that brings revealing things, that brings revelation. It's here that the light can open our eyes. We're safe, we're accepted, but we know there's more that we should be open to. This is why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's, a, it's really a cry for light that reveals. If we're going to walk in the light and experience the victory of the light over darkness, we're going to have to embrace that change is central to that enterprise. I mean, we may have some things down pretty well. I mean, maybe you've got some great theology, maybe you've got some good habits, maybe you're loving in a number of ways that's applaudable, but dragons still often lurk deep in our souls. And they generally only come out when we're under pressure. So a lot of times they're undetected. But when we're under pressure, like when you're hungry or you're tired or you're bored or you're lonely or when you've been treated unjustly or you've got these lingering unmet needs or you've been forced to make a sacrifice without your consent or when you've been deeply offended, there's these dragons that get stirred up and they come out of us and we can get ugly and breathe fire at people. The good news is that not all the dragons in us need to be addressed in any one moment because God loves us even though we house them. But know that he is interested in addressing them. He's interested in rooting them out of us over time. This is one of the central whys of things like Lent. Lent stirs up the dragons within us intentionally. It's like we're poking the dragons. And when we say no to things that we want, or we say yes to things that practices we'd rather avoid. So we push ourselves into these spaces and dragons come out. The blind person in our gospel ends up seeing, but, but realize that losing blindness changes your life. And we end up being influenced by what we see, the new that we see, the understanding that we have. This is what Paul is claiming in 
2 Corinthians 3 in a beautiful way. He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, watch this, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In a revelation of what you don't see, when you see things you don't see, there's not just the revealing, there's a transformation. You begin to move from glory to glory. You begin to change. Now, I love and I hate this. Why? Because change and transformation is both hopeful, but it's also painful. Hopeful because our lives can actually be different but painful because our lives will end up being different. <laughs> and that adjustment to different is, is often disorienting. There's a text in Jeremiah where um, Jeremiah uh, is submitting to the Lord and the Lord speaks to him. It says, then the Lord, this is Jeremiah 1.9, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, Jeremiah is saying. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And then watch this. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations, over the kingdoms, and watch what he's appointed to do, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, and then to build and to plant. I mean, the reality of it is, is that the majority of God's work through Jeremiah was destructive before it was positive. I mean, he said that you're, the first thing's going to happen is you're going to pluck down, you're going to break down, destroy, overthrow, and then build and plant. Most of us don't understand that when we move into change, it's two-thirds of it is disruptive and painful and difficult. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, I, uh, I have this relationship with someone that I want God to build and plant. I want something to happen that is positive. But what you have to understand is for God to move in that, oftentimes he's got to pluck up. He's got to break down. He's got to destroy and overthrow how you think about that relationship, how you're relating to that person before you can ever build and plant. Or you might say you've got this deep fear in your life. Can God just build some, uh, you know, faith in you and build some strength in you so you're not in so much fear. Realize, if God's going to move in you, if you're going to be transformed, if things are going to change, if insight's going to come, you're going to have to go through some plucking up, some overthrowing, some, some breaking down, and some destruction <laughs> of how you think about life and why it is that you're in fear before you can build and plant hope and faith and that sort of thing in you. Or you may feel like you, you need to have a better career uh, in your life, a better career path. But what, what may end up happening as you're praying about it is you may have to realize God will begin to pluck up and break down and destroy and overthrow how you think about your career. Maybe going back to school, maybe doing some things that are just deeply disruptive. When you say to God, build and plant, it's not always an easy thing. So truth is, Change sucks at first. It challenges how we think and what we do. And again, it's like flipping on the light in the middle of the, of the sleepy night. And that is not immediately a beautiful thing. <laughs> Remember our text of Revisions 5 says in verse 14, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. <laughs> There's a part of you that will hate awaking as a sleeper, part of you that will resist getting up. 
the research, and I think this is why in the research on American lives tell us that only about 10% of people are willing to take time to examine their lives and to be honest with themselves. Think about that. Few people welcome the input that they need to change, that there's something going on in them that isn't right. To get that input just within themselves or from others, they just resist that. And yet, for millennia, the, the pagan philosopher Socrates wisely said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And yet, most of us live unexamined lives. Why? I mean, there's scores of reasons. But one prominent one is that most of us don't like stuff revealed to us about ourselves. We want to feel like we're okay. And if we believe there's something wrong with us, we feel vulnerable, like we will be thrown out like garbage. So we pretend we're perfect. And this is the pain of seeing what the light reveals. I'll never forget when Gail and I first got married. I mean, that first year, I could not figure out why she thought the way she thought. I mean, I figured that she should just think like me. I mean, like a man. The big teaching of the day was that husbands were to treat their wives like they were royalty. It was actually sweet and honoring. But, I mean, I was upset. And I was in prayer in a prayer meeting. And we were singing. And, and, and I, we had just had this big fight. And I, thought, and I remember I, I turned to, you know, in my prayer heart and I, to God in the midst of that worship that was going on. And I said, God, she wants me to treat her like a queen. But she's acting like a dog. I was so mad. And I thought God would understand, right? I mean, he's, he, he, you know, most of the texts call him a he, so I, you know, he would understand that. Although God's not a he or a she, right? He's not a male or female. But, I, but in the midst of that, as, I, as intense as I was and upset as I was, I am not kidding you. I heard in my heart, and I really believe this was a spirit because I wasn't expecting this. I heard in my heart, you're the dog. See, I, I, I think that sometimes when uh, trouble's going on, we're not very open to recognize that sometimes we're right in the heart of it, maybe the causation of it. And if we want God to move in our lives, it's going to mean some painful changes. I think this is why Jesus said to his disciples at one point, this is John 16 and verse 12. He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I dare you to ask God to be honest with you about you. Because at some point after you ask that, you're going to say to God, okay, I'm good. Please, no more. Don't tell me anymore. <laughs> Irenaeus, second century church leader guy, church father, he, he claimed that the glory of God is to be fully human. I mean, he had this idea in mind that humans were initially childish at creation. Uh, that's versus Augustine's claim some 200 years later where he was claiming that uh, humans were created perfect. But Irenaeus claimed that the human beings were childish and that as a result of the mistakes of sin, uh, they carried a deep internal brokenness. So for him, when he said becoming fully human, he meant that it would take much faith and a lot of soul work. He saw this world that we live in as a soul-forming world. I like that. So let, let me give you a practice that seems to help me with embracing the light when it's painful. I hope it'll help some of you. So first, I, I sit quietly and I try to be present in the moment. 
I try to find a position that's that's relaxing, but not so much so that I start getting sleepy. And I usually take a few deep breaths, two or three breaths, and I try to engage my imagination. Imagination is a great gift that makes us uniquely human. And so I'll breathe in, and while I'm breathing in, I'll, I'll, I'll embrace the idea that I'm I'm breathing in the fact that I'm loved without condition. And then I breathe out. Usually I'll think about something like the sense of being rejected or having guilt or fear or shame. I just breathe that yuck out. And then I breathe in again. I breathe in the fact that God has mercy for me and that his forgiveness is on me and the fact that God is not thrown by my stupid. And I breathe out anything that's fearful or worrisome or full of anxiety. So I'll do those kind of breaths and breathe in and out until I have this sense of being present. And then I try to do things like, that's the only thing I do, but I'll try to do things like imagining God's fire, right? Or God's warmth, um, like what appeared on the heads of the disciples, you know, in Acts 2, as it describes tongues of fire. And I'll see that over me. And then I imagine it coming into me, you know, just into my body, <laughs> starting at the top of my head, down through my body, into my shoulders, in my arms, in my hands, down into my chest, in my heart, my stomach, all the way to my toes. One of the reasons I like to do this is because it's important to remember that you're not just a brain on a stick. I mean, you're you're not just a mind, but you're a whole spirit, soul, and body. And I let that warmth kind of move around me and I watch what's resistant in me. For me, it's usually the places, the resistant parts of the places that worry, you know, or stress out. Sometimes it's my thoughts and I have to kind of calm that or in my shoulders and my neck, or my chest, my stomach. I mean, areas where I carry my uh, discombobulation, right? I'm just kind of, I get kind of freaked out. And so I just sit there in that warmth. Doing things like that, that simple exercise of thought and openness and quiet, um, they set me up to obey texts like Philippians 4. You remember this text, it says, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, this is what happens to you when you get into the right space. This meditation or meditation like this, they're, they're precursors to articulated prayer. They sort of are a way that you can obey Jesus when he said, when you pray, go into the closet and shut the door. This is some of the ways that that happens. There's all kinds of times when these, uh, the idea of light or the idea of warmth is just that simple exercise or an exercise of thinking about a thought that you get insight from, a, a thought that is godly or calming uh, or brings a sense of hope and promise to you. It, it can be like that, like a light that you just let come into you. For, for example, during, during this crisis with the coronavirus, I mean, it's messing with so many, uh, with the economic pressures that are happening. And for some, they're having to shut businesses down. Some of you I know have been impacted by this. It's so easy to just move into despair about your financial situation. But let me say this, here's a thought. Here's a thought you should embrace and let it just dance in you. God is still the provider. I mean, even when the financial bottom drops out for us, I mean, I can think of 
more than a dozen times in my life when when uh, my financial life looked pretty bleak. I mean, I was facing layoff or had a complete job loss or had deep unexpected expenses and Gil and I scrambled, right? We had to work through fear and we had to focus on what God had said was true. I mean, that didn't look true. And, and this is not easy to do. I mean, here's just one of the dozens of promises that God gives us about this notion that he cares for really physical needs of our lives. Most of you know this one pretty well. It's out of Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to their life? He says, um, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow, and they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, he says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has, each, has enough trouble of its own. Let this warning come to you. See, if you, if you embrace the thoughts that come from this text, and just let it roam through your mind and your body. Um, what fears does it bump into that need to be addressed? What actions will that inspire? I mean, it may take you a while for fears to be quashed about lack and, that, and about the, the situation we're in. And it may take a while for divine ideas to ignite inside you, but stick in there because it will happen. Remember the miracle of creation happened in the midst, right smack in the midst of chaos. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep, it says, which means everything was jumbled together and everything was confusing. I mean, that's where we land when we're in trouble. But the creation begins when stuff starts getting separated out, dark from light, ground from sky, land from water, and then life comes. So take the promises that bring warmth and bring fire, that give light, which gives you sight, insight. And the promise that God is still your provider is true even in a moment like we're in right now, even in this moment where the evidence is that that may not be true. But if you and I let that light, that fire, that insight dance in us and start to sort through all of our concerns and all of the worries that go on inside us, life will come. Let me end with this quote I gave you last week, but it's so good. It's from Catherine Marshall. And here's what she writes. 
If we are to believe Jesus, his Father, and our Father is the God of all life, and his caring and provision include a sheepherder's lost lamb, a falling sparrow, a sick child, the hunger pangs of a crowd of 4,000, the need for wine at a wedding feast, and the plight of professional fishermen who toiled all night and caught nothing. These vignettes scattered through the Gospels are like little patches of gold dust. And they say to us, no creaturely need is outside the scope and the range of prayer. Amen. So let's see here for just, just a moment and let these ideas soak in us. And then I have um, one housekeeping issue that I want to address. Okay, starting tomorrow, we're going to begin an initiative that we're calling Connect on the Eights. And uh, what that is, is we're going to be having meetings online where we're inviting folks from Sanctuary and from around the Diocese of St. Anthony to pray and share on the Eights, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. The morning time, the a.m. time, will be focused on the general morning office prayer office from the Book of Common Prayer. If you've never tried it, you should. We make it really easy. The words are on the screen. It's easy peasy. And then uh, it takes about 20, 25 minutes. And then in the, at 8 p.m., uh, it'll be more of a encouraging time. We're going to have someone share a word, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, a word. Myself, Dr. Green, one of our staff, some folks around the diocese. And then we'll also be able to hear from you about how you're doing with everything that's going on. And uh, we'll do an abbreviated office. The whole thing will be about 15 to 20 minutes, not long. I mean, it is true that we are submitting to the inconvenience of social distancing because of the concern and the care, you know, and the care that we have for vulnerable people, right, that, uh, um, that are among us. And because we don't want to, we have this threat that uh, we might overwhelm our healthcare system. So we're doing all that. We're being inconvenienced, keeping that distance, that sort of thing. But we don't have to think that we can't see each other just on something virtual. I mean, we don't have to have spiritual distancing or isolation from each other. I think we need each other, especially in times that are hard. We need to see each other's faces. There's something about seeing each other's faces. It's like when I drive and I see a policeman on the road, I mean, I always look at my odometer. <laughs> There's something about, okay, remember the law. Every time I see a face of a believer that I know, I always look in my heart. I mean, how am I doing? It's just something beautiful about seeing another believer. So please, don't walk through all of this alone and don't just listen to the news. Um, let God's word have a place and let the storied lives that we share have a place in us. Join us. Our hope is that this whole thing's going to be short-lived, but we really need to be ready to do this for the foreseeable future. I can't help but believe that the wonder of technology, at least in part, is a safety net for the church to do what it needs to do to stay strong in seasons like this. Um, to applaud an old adage, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, connect with us on the eights to light a candle. Um, you'll see a link to the eights on our app, our website. It's a Zoom link that will work from your computer on your smartphone. So let's walk this out together. We can do this.